0: Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. Oh, I could not be more excited for this episode.
1: Yeah, you know, it's we've talked to so many awesome people, um, which is one of the things that I love about doing this with you is just because we get the opportunity to have these awesome conversations. But this one struck a chord in a different way, um, mm-hmm. and I know I'm speaking for both of us when I say for both of us, because yeah. it's somebody that we respect and have been studying in um, underneath probably for a very long time. And
0: Mm.
1: I don't know, it was almost like an out-of-body experience for me for half of this interview.
0: (laughs) You know what I loved about before we started this conversation was, I feel like we're both people that are very like, people are people. We don't get nervous to talk Mm -hmm. to people um, that, you know, and, and we've gotten the opportunity to talk to some pretty cool people. And I feel like we were both like, are you nervous? I'm kind of nervous <laughs> before this conversation, and I think because to your point, um, Sean Korn has been such um, an important, pivotal person in both of our journeys. I, I think she's just been a really impactful spiritual teacher for both of us. You know, um, so many of the ways that I experience the world, and um, you know, these higher truths that I sort of draw from often have been um, influenced by her and her, her way of being in the world. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I think, you know, one of the things that I've always loved about her, but I love about her even more, obviously, after having this conversation is she makes it very, very clear that you do not get to call yourself a yogi. Mm. You are not involved in actively dismantling a lot of the systems that harm other people right like one of the tenets of yoga is ahimsa right mm-hmm. which means no harm do no harm and it's not just about us walking through life doing no harm it's actually also about actively attempting to make sure others are not being harmed and she not only lives that day to day but but she it's like I needed that reminder, you know. <laughs> I haven't studied for a long time underneath anybody. I feel like once you kind of get out on your own and you start doing your own yoga practice, um sometimes you forget and and I think this was an important conversation for me because it it relit something in me that was like, "Oh, right, that was actually part of why my journey went the way that it did." Mm. That was she was part of why I moved forward in the direction I did and why I have been such a social advocate and why I've always connected, you know, yoga to that advocacy. Um, and I'd almost forgotten that, I think, until we had this conversation.
0: Yeah, same. I'm really glad that you said that it was sort of an out-of-body moment for both of us because I feel like after we got off, we took a big exhale and we had that conversation. And I think. So much of that is around, you know, when you're in Sean's presence, I think you are just so clear about the fact that something, source, Mm -hmm. is moving through her Mm -hmm. as she speaks and it makes you want to be better. It Mm -hmm. makes you want to show up for this life, you know, in a bigger, bolder, braver way. And I'm just so grateful for her. I'm so grateful for the time she gave us to do this and that we get to share this. Agreed. Yeah, I hope um, she is as inspirational
1: to you all as she's been for Denae and I for so much of our journey. Denae and I, we must say, are a little fangirly today about (laughs) who we have with us. So today we have Sean Korn, and Sean Korn is an internationally acclaimed yoga teacher and public speaker known for leadership and social activism. She has used her platform to bring awareness to so many global issues, including social justice, sex trafficking, HIV AIDS awareness, animal rights, the list honestly goes on and on. And since 2007, she has been training leaders of activism through her co-founded organization Off the Mat Into the World. Sean also co-founded the Global Siva Challenge, which has raised over $3.5 million by activating communities of yoga and wellness in fund and awareness-raising efforts. She's also the author of the book, Revolution of the Soul, and is so many other things that I could go on and on
0: and on about, (laughs) but
1: we will let her take that. So, Sean, thank you again so much for, for being on the show
0: with us today. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you both. Yeah. You know, Sean, I feel like over the years, I've listened to you on so many different podcasts. And so I thought a lot about what I would want to talk to you about um, if I had the opportunity to sit down with you. And, you know, so many people know you as this world-renowned yoga teacher. And certainly that is, you know, how I have known you. But also, I always think of you as an activist and how much your activism has impacted my life. And I think about um, you as, you know, just such a profound spiritual teacher to me. And, um, what I really wanted to ask you about and has been such a game changer in my life was, you know, right before we got on, um, we were talking about how about 10 years ago, I did an intensive week with you through off the mat into the world, um, called yoga purpose and action. And basically, um, for our listeners, it's, it's a week where you, really get exposed to all kinds of social issues that, you know, for me were things that, you know, um, really like meeting in that way, I had never been exposed to, right? Like things like um, issues surrounding the prison industrial complex and food deserts that I had never actually seen up close and personal and community organizers and all the works that they'd done to end gang violence. And um, I remember just being so profoundly impacted is the only (laughs) words I can use to speak to what that week um felt like for me but at the end of the week I remember you said these words Sean that completely shifted the trajectory of my life and the words were don't let the fact that you're not the person you want to be yet hold you back from showing up and trying to make a difference in this world and I'm gonna get emotional because (laughs) um that week was the last day that, you know, I ever drank alcohol. I ever smoked pot. I completely decided that like, I didn't have to wait to be the person that I was trying to be to do something. And service has been such um, a profound way that my mental health has been shifted and impacted. And, you know, I guess this to me feels like such a full circle moment of being able to say, thank you so much, Sean. Um, Truly changed the trajectory of my life.
2: Now you're going to make me cry. <laughs> what I'm going to. <laughs>
0: um, so now that I've gotten that out, I guess I really um, wanted to ask you about service and how you came to this awareness of how how service can change our lives. You know, for me, it is the thing that I continuously come back to when I feel like I'm struggling with my mental health. When I feel like I feel a little lost or ungrounded. um, The question I ask myself is how do I serve? You know, Mm -hmm. how do I show up? And that was a lesson that I learned from you. So how did you come to that awareness, Sean?
2: Well, first of all, how amazing that you, like, that you just did it, that Mm -hmm. you took that breath and Chose to change the trajectory of your life, even though I'm sure so much of your body wanted to orient towards what was habitual, what was comforting, what was self regulating. It's such the pathway of recovery is so can be so daunting for most people to even attempt to make that first step. So I'm honored that. whatever reason, something came out of my mouth that you had that aha moment that shifted your own trajectory and that you had the wherewithal, the strength, the commitment, the community, the support, whatever it is to still be on that path a decade later and still doing the work and now modeling back to the world, what it looks like. And as you know, it's a never ending process. It's just that the tools get better and the rate in which you stay in the overwhelm or the stuckness gets shorter. And if you can tolerate the discomfort, you know that there's light at the at, on the other side that you can get through it. But it doesn't mean that suddenly you're just like, yay, all better. Um, it's a lifelong journey, yeah. and uh, I think so. Yay, and thank you, <laughs> and amazing. Um, and I think that my own journey, it, I would have separated. I would have never thought myself as being. I wouldn't have identified as an activist or someone involved in service. Back when I got involved in activism in New York City in the 80s, my commitment to social change was really related to women's issues, uh, women's health issues, and gay rights. Because so many of my friends during that time were um, being impacted because of the HIV AIDS virus. Mm -hmm. And I felt outraged by the stigma, by the ignorance, by the lack of care and concern that the medical industry was providing for so many people that I knew and worked with at that time. So I oriented towards um, picketing and um, I was a frontline activist. But when I look back at it, I... I was angry over so many other things. I had a level of anger in me that I hadn't processed. I didn't even know about personal injustice, feeling so disgusted with the world in which I was a part of. Mm. And going to rallies made me feel better and meaning the screaming the raging the confrontation getting in people's faces I felt amazing when a rally was done Mm -hmm. but that feeling didn't last very long a day two days and then the anxiety would come up and I didn't know enough about anxiety I didn't understand enough about how we internalize rage for me to think like oh I might need personal help here Mm -hmm. instead In the same way, perhaps drinking and drugs for some people anesthetize them, yelling and screaming and raging Mm -hmm. helped to numb me out, helped to change the way that I felt. And so my activism was in one part wanting to make social change. But if I had to really be honest, it was because it made me feel better. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until later I realized that, what being a frontline activist did for me was discharged the internalized emotion Mm. and allowed me temporarily to express the intensity I felt, but I didn't have a place for. So my activism wasn't coming from an integrated place, a balanced place. Um, It required me at a time to stop got into therapy, stopped drinking and doing drugs myself, um, got into yoga and meditation, of course. And in activism, you have to be against something. Mm -hmm. So you have to create separation. You have to otherize, or at least in the past, that was my experience. Whereas yoga was telling me to unify. It was telling me to love, love everybody, you know, to, to create that level of a relationship. And I didn't really want anyone to know my dirty little secret because it didn't look like yoga. Mm. But mm-hmm. as the years just chipped away, kind of like Danae, like with you, someone said something, these little light bulbs would go on in my head and I would just make a little shift mm. and then another little shift and then another, and then I would get this tool and that tool. And suddenly the world started to collide and I realized there was never any separation between yoga and activism. There, the I think the most meaningful thing that really shifted my understanding of it was when I learned the language of ahimsa, mm-hmm. do no harm, do no harm. That felt personal. Like I shouldn't do any harm. Meaning like, well, then I'm going to stop eating meat. Well, then I'm not going to... I'm not going to use languaging that's going to diminish or devalue anyone. But a teacher said, no, ahimsa actually means you disrupt harm Mm -hmm. when you see harm. Mm -hmm. It's not a matter of just do no harm. You disrupt it. That changed everything for me because the teacher wanted me to understand that when you see harm and don't disrupt it, you are contributing to it. And so that's when the worlds collided and my activism and my yoga have never been separate since that point.
1: Mm. Wow. Yeah, I that's so many profound kind of light bulbs in that moment and just I feel like by the time I came into yoga the communication was so much more connected and I and I would probably credit you with a lot of that because I think people coming up after you and, and, you know, maybe 2000s, 2010s, like that generation of yogis really did understand the kind of connection. And, you know, I think it's people like you. And for me, Jack Cornfield that have always been super clear that they go hand in hand, that spirituality and activism are one and the same and that you actually can't separate them without some spiritual bypassing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I've always taken that to heart. I mean, Danae and I have talked about this, like how we, we both similarly know that there's just such a connection between the two, but that is... God, what a powerful way to describe the kind of coming together.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I feel like it, it speaks to a little bit of what we've struggled with this year. Yeah. Um, Vanessa and I've had a lot of conversations about like, how do you be in this world, but not of this world and yeah. still, you know, present to the very real suffering that is happening collectively, but not feel overwhelmed by it, but not Assumed. feel like it. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I think that, you know, as therapists, we we certainly, like, this is a little bit of like what we, we talk about and we, we struggle with, right? Like how do we continue to hold space for suffering, um, but not let it like bring you into a space where you feel overwhelmed with like what is heavy and hard and, um, and not being able to see like- Or hope. hopeless. Yes. right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that this moment is going to meet everyone in a different- in a different way, Um, meaning that for some of us, we've actually been prepping for this moment. Like I, I look at it on a spiritual level. I was just talking to some of my teammates earlier today over at Off The Mat, that when I look back to what we did 13 years ago, I didn't know, talking about social justice, talking about racial terrorism, talking about white supremacy, that that languaging was so new in the mainstream Mm -hmm. and it was uncomfortable and confrontational. And on a personal level, I made a thousand mistakes as I was trying to unpack and understand my own whiteness, my own complicity. And there was always a part of me that's like, why am I doing this? Mm. Like my career is fine. Everything's going great. No one seems to want to talk about this. If I teach a detox class, I'm going to get 500 people in the room. If I teach a class on yoga and social justice, I'm going to have six people in the room. It's going to be even more effort. Why am I doing this? Hmm. And yet everything in my nervous system just kept saying, this is the work. This is the work. Keep learning, keep studying. And I would orient to different teachers because- Although maybe myself, Jack Cornfield, and, and, and some other teachers were very vocal about this work in the mainstream community. Yeah. I like to say that the, there isn't a yoga community. There are communities of yoga. And mm-hmm. there were plenty of teachers, especially teachers of color, who have been talking about this for years, providing programming, insights, um, all of that. It was just new to the mainstream community, which is it can be predominantly white, able-bodied, neurotypical, et cetera. And so I struggled trying to unlearn habits, unlearn belief systems, and it was radically uncomfortable. And I made a lot of mistakes. And over the years, would I trusted what something was leading me in a direction and I trusted it and at the same time resisted it and then would work with therapists and teachers about that resistance and and learning more about, yes, it is my privilege to resist. Mm. Like, but if I'm gonna have skin in the game, I've gotta put myself forward and learn. And I was talking with the the team today and saying like, in this moment, after 13 years of really doing the work, I don't have the same level of discomfort that I did. My Mm. nervous system is integrated. I feel confident in being able to deliver the information to the communities without any apology. Mm -hmm. It took years for my nervous system to titrate into that, to be able to meet this moment. Um, Because right now I feel like people are just saying, what yoga, social justice, racial terrorism, uh, national unrest, am I racist? Am I classist? Like they're asking really big questions. And I feel that at Off The Mat, we're kind of like, we have a workshop for you. We have a program for you. We have a teacher for you. We have community. (laughs) We can sit down, my child. (laughs) Yeah, take take a breath. We got you. Mm. But to go back to your question, 13 years ago, I'm in a fetal position, crying, freaking out, trying to titrate my nervous system, feeling the shame, the guilt, the grief. And so I'm hoping that people in this moment, that we meet them where they're at with this, that we recognize that we're all in trauma, but in different ways, Mm -hmm. we're all impacted in this moment in different ways. And that for some people, their self-care, they need a bath and they need to get their feet on the ground. For other people, they need to cry and rage and beat pillows. For other people, they need to be validated to be like, yeah, you were right. Like racism is real and you've been impacted by this and you know, and now like just validate the experience. For others, it's like, you need to get on the front line. You need to acknowledge your power and your privilege and you need to use it in a way that actually um, amplifies others, get to work. And so I feel that we have, we need to meet people in these different ways I don't wanna shame someone to get them to move too quickly because odds are they'll they'll cause harm as I caused harm 13 years ago in many different ways because I didn't have the skills. But we can provide support, insight, acknowledgement. We have to normalize these conversations Mm -hmm. and we have to do it in different ways. As a white identified person, as someone with power, with privilege, with authority, I have a responsibility to speak to other white folks. Mm -hmm. and help them to understand that whiteness is a construct, Mm -hmm. that if we are in a white body and have been raised in an environment of whiteness, we are racist, we are sexist, we are classist, we are, we hold bias, discrimination, and prejudice in our bodies. Mm -hmm. That this is of no fault of ours personally, we inherited it from our culture. It's in our DNA. And the same way I inherited the, the color of my skin, my hair texture and my eye color is the same way I inherited my fear, my um, even my hate. Mm. And it's not gonna end just by a, a snap of a finger. It didn't take me five minutes to get racist. It's not gonna take five minutes to end it. But if we can normalize it and own it, then we can begin to change it. So all of us who are leaders in the community have a different responsibility to speak to different communities in a different way and model back what the work looks like and challenge people, provoke people, and um, because lives are at stake. Like the world is not gonna change unless we commit to that inside out change and show what the discomfort looks like. And so for folks that are listening, this doesn't let you off the hook. My hope is that you're, if you're listening to this, that you're already involved in a process of transformation. You're already asking questions. The big picture is, is that everyone deserves peace, freedom, equity, justice, fairness, food, um, security, and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen unless we as individuals come together as a collective to make that happen. The reason for this oppression and disparity is because of the systems that are at, a, that are at play. Um, the systems are working perfectly. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do, um, but at the expense of the happiness, health, welfare, and safety of others. Mm. The systems are just made up of people. Change the people, you change the systems. Right. And so what the invitation is for everyone who's listening is do the work, move towards the discomfort, mean what you say when you say we are one Mm. and look at the ways in which that's not actually true in your own behaviors, Mm. where you're creating other otherness and see that this is the yoga in action. This is the initiation. It's not somewhere over here. Asking questions around racism, around sexism, homophobia, ableism, on and on and on. This is meeting the moment. And we can't point a finger out and say, you are racist, you are sexist. It actually has to be turned inward. And it's scary. Mm -hmm. It is a dismantling of an identity Mm -hmm. that is so ingrained in our body that it will feel like you are dying because you are, like your old self is, and it has to. And so be tender with yourself, get the support, but do the work and notice the moments where you start to get defensive. And again, I'm speaking to, I can, I can only really with authority speak to whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't, nor should I speak to the trauma that is in the bodies of black and brown folks, of anyone who is not a part of our dominant society. Mm -hmm. But I can speak to the, the experience of whiteness and the way in which we're getting in the way of the health, happiness, and justice of others. And so that's my responsibility at this time. And so for anyone who's committed to doing the work, know that there are a myriad of teachers out there right now that are really speaking to this. And if I don't speak to you, like if, I, if it doesn't resonate coming from this body, I can give you a, a list of resources. Actually, you can get them at offthematintotheworld.org if you go to our faculty. There are so many different um, kinds of people, different representation, different uh, ideologies and creativity that are offering the same work but through a different lens. Mm -hmm. And so I want to support everybody to find the teacher that's going to speak to them, but don't get passive, Mm -hmm. go into the experience and go into the experience deeply. Because like I said, lives are at stake.
1: I think you just spoke to, I mean, there's so many points that I want to bring up, but like just the, you know, Danae and I speak so frequently, we, we come from a depth psychology background. So for us doing shatter work is, is is part of psychology, right like you cannot not be with your shadow yeah. um in in the form of psychology that we practice and live really And there's two things I guess that are coming up for me. one is kind of reflecting back to people who are listening and to myself this idea of self-compassion in the understanding that it takes a long time for your nervous system to be able to tolerate things like, being activated, getting defensive, mm-hmm. um, you know, feeling judged, like all of these things that are coming up for so many of us that are white, right, that are attempting to get out there and be vocal. And for like myself, I know I'm not the only one who have family members who are very pushing against, you know, what, I, what I'm what i attempting to speak out about. You know, you've got the family members that have been lost to the QAnon t- kind of, you know, speak, if you will. Um, we see the shadow coming out in our society, you know, in this rise of White supremacy and white nationalism in the pushing back against what it is that we're out there trying to speak to. Um, And so, this idea of titrating, this idea of it's okay if you feel overwhelmed, Mm. take a breath, go internal, heal thyself right? And then try again and then try again. And then, and as you do that slowly, your window of tolerance for this stuff is going to, by nature of our nervous system, slowly increase. It doesn't mean the first time you go out there and get uncomfortable, you have to just stop what you're doing or that you're wrong or that I shouldn't speak up. I shouldn't say anything. No, this is normal.
0: This mm-hmm. is so
1: normal. Um, and so I appreciate you, you putting words to that in your own personal experience, because I know a lot of people, even clients that it's like the first taste you get of that discomfort by nature of like needing to protect yourself, you retreat. No, that means you're on the right path. That's a good breadcrumb to find,
2: right? Yeah. So I, I just, yeah, I appreciate the words that you put to that. Well, you know, the first time I got called out because of my, just my own ignorance, you know, this is many years ago, I was well-intended. Mm-hmm. I could stand by my intention. Mm-hmm. right? And I hurt people mm-hmm. by something that I said and I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. Um, and what came up for me was this massive, like a wave, a tsunami of shame, Shame. deep, deep shame. And to block the shame, I went to defensive and angry Mm -hmm. and used my words because I, I've got a lot of words, use my words to try to flip the script to make the other person feel inadequate Mm -hmm. Um, and, and something else, really inadequate. And when I processed it over the years, shame would absolutely be a core shadow that has followed me since my childhood. Um, that moment simply held a mirror up to what was already deeply within me, that needed, it needed to be confronted because it was like spiritually, I said to spirit, I wanna show up and make a difference in this world. I wanna be a leader and support the evolution of our culture so that we can all experience oneness and peace. Mm. Spiritually, that's an incredibly arrogant statement. Mm. Arrogant, because God, I really believe that spirit takes you literally. When you say stuff like that, spirit leans back and it's like, interesting. All right, let's do this. Because for you to make that happen, you're going to have to confront your own shadow. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to pull the veils back of your own ignorance in order to actually contribute in that way. And that included having to confront my shame. So why did I think that wasn't going to show up? in all these ways, that was God all over it. Like holding that to, up that mirror when, when the, the shit hit the fan, it was like, can you love now? Can you be in truth now? Can you be balanced now? And the truth was I couldn't. I reverted back to my six year, my six year old self who didn't have the tools just to sit with the shame. And instead, when I was confronted with shame as a child, I had two reactions, power under, meaning dissociation, withdrawal Mm -hmm. or power over, which would be arrogance and confrontation and aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. So in that moment of when someone pushed back, I was not in present time. I was not embodied. I was not taking any responsibility. I was eight Mm -hmm. and I was acting out those behaviors because it hadn't been processed yet. And it was a gift. I look back at that moment that moment, even though it was humiliating, it was public, I felt misunderstood all that stuff. It led to the next step, which was to find a teacher of color Mm -hmm. to help me understand the difference between charity and social um, justice, Mm -hmm. to listen Mm -hmm. and learn rather than to like, read something, and then spew it out, broaden my relationships, and do a different level of work. It took me to the next level. That then took me to another level and another level, and it's why I do the work I do today. That was a catalyst, but I had to go to the shadow, and it had nothing to do with the moment. It had everything to do with unprocessed trauma, and people will, they will reach, get re-traumatized in this work. Yes, I've been in therapy since I was 18 years old. I've been highly committed to therapy. Um, rarely has there been any extended amount of time in all of those years. I'm 54 years old now, even as I became successful in a teacher, as a teacher, I doubled down right. because I was very aware of the seduction, when you've got people telling you in a, when you're in a position of authority and you're in a position where you, I'm putting this in air quotes, make people feel better, healthier, more embodied until they become more integrated. They think that I personally am, am the catalyst for it. That's a very seductive thing when you don't have a strong foundation, meaning that if I feel like shit one day, all I have to do is like, oh, I'm just going to book a yoga class because I'll feel amazing when it's done. So there's a real shadow in leadership. There's a real shadow in when you have any kind of um, pro- a projected authority, even as you know, a, a therapist, you know this, that transference, that projection. So I've had to double down over the years and stay in therapy and confront the shadow and confront the ego and know that if I'm committed to this work, then I've gotta be even more hyper-vigilant not to buy into the hype. Otherwise that's just gonna get in the way. Mm -hmm. And it is constant work. I never feel that I can take this for granted, that I can just, just because I have the words that I can let myself off the hook, mm-hmm. even more so now that the collective shadow around white supremacy and racial terrorism is being excavated. Mm-hmm. And it since it hasn't been a part of the mainstream um, lexicon, is that the word, lexicon, dialogue, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, discourse, I need to even more so make sure that I'm in therapy, that mm-hmm. I'm processing the, the stuff that comes up and now of course, being in therapy is a luxury. It's, uh, it shouldn't be. Um, it's uh, a privilege that those of us with like economic resources have access to. Um, but in any way, for anyone who's listening, whether it's life coaches, the 12-step program, um, I'm sure you have better resources than I do in ways. There's places where there's sliding scales. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's even free resources um, in, in certain environments. But having someone bear witness to your shadow self and to help you to come to terms with the language when our culture does not support or validate the power of. Um, of our shadow or of our mental health and the impact our mental health has on the way in which we experience the world, the way in which the world experiences us, and then therefore the choices that we make. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that I will never take for granted. I am forever grateful for the person who first encouraged me to get into therapy um, at such a young age, who recognized that I needed support and help make it so comfortable and normal mm-hmm. that it's why I feel to this day um, grounded. Mm-hmm. And even if I take a hit, I, it, I don't personalize it in the same way. Um, I might grieve, I might cry, I might rage with a friend, I might process it with my therapist but I'll move through it very quickly and see the bigger spiritual picture of why it was necessary mm. and find gratitude that one more layer of my own humanity was being exposed because that now I get to dig even that much di- deeper into myself for wholeness.
0: Mm. I love that, Sean. You know, I think that you just put words to something that has come up for me so many times over the last year and, you know, the, the othering and the shaming and the... Um, like really like the inability to sort of see ourselves in the person that we experience as the other what has come up for me so many times is a little bit what you spoke to with if we start as a baseline like yes all of us have racism in us I as a woman of color have racism in me I have privilege whether it's socioeconomic privilege whether it's um you know, like self-hatred that I haven't had to like really unpack or look at through my experience, like there are blind spots that I have. And if I can stay present with like, where is the racism versus like defending against these things that aren't in me, I think it just feels like such a different conversation. And, you know, um, when George Floyd was murdered, I remember watching the police officer that committed that horrific act and just like really focusing in on his face and thinking, my God, what happened to you? You know, like, how did we get here? And I was so struck by like seeing the child within him in pain, you know, like that there is real visceral pain there. And I just feel like so much of what you just said really brought up, um, this is an invitation for all of us to, go inward, look at our, um, our unhealed children, like the parts of ourselves that really are, are desperately longing to be healed. And, um, that is what I think this moment is calling us to rise into doing. And if we can
1: normalize it, right. Like something else you said, it's like, if we can normalize the fact that this is present in all of us, right. It doesn't mean that we're bad. We don't, I mean, the shame is going to come up, naturally and normally, but it doesn't mean that we are bad as people. It means that it is to your point, the same as me having green eyes, right? Like I inherited it. It is part of who I am. That's okay. It means that all of us as a collective can look at it. You're not different or mm. alone in this. We're all in this together. And if we can normalize that, I do believe that there's more of an opening Is saying, oh, you mean I'm not the only one that has racism in my system, in my body, in my DNA, you too, and you too, and you too. Okay. Now I feel seen. Now I feel like I can open up into what does that mean? Now I feel like I can challenge my ways of thinking or what I believe because I don't feel alone in that. And so that idea of the collective really helps break down the shame, right? It mm-hmm. helps break down the like it's just me, I need to keep this a secret and keep it in my shadow. No, you're not alone. We're all unearthing our shadow together and and there's beauty in that and there's strength in that.
2: Yeah, you know, I and I reflect back to when I first started in a in a, in a slightly healthier way working uh, being in service and working with youth who had been sexually exploited, sex trafficked, I came into it with just so much ignorance. I remember walking into that space mm. with like, "I'm here to help." Like, <laughs> I'm like, I know, um, I know sexual trauma. I can help you with your sexual trauma, mm. and I would wonder why there would be so much resistance. Mm. And I would feel confused and hurt afterwards. Like, why aren't these kids responding to me? I get them.
0: Mm.
2: It took me years to realize that when I walked into those environments, I didn't just walk in as, you know, Sean Doogooder. I didn't just walk in as Sean Doogooder who shares some version of, of trauma that they may or may not be able to identify with. But I also walked in with 300 years of colonization Mm -hmm. and enslavement and white supremacy, thousands of years Mm -hmm. of abuse that comes into a room with me that the young people that I was working with, they may not be conscious of this, Mm -hmm. but they've got their own trauma of oppression that lives in their body perpetuated by people who look like me, the onus is on me to recognize that if I'm going to enter those environments, my trauma is meeting someone else's trauma. Mm. My history and ancestry is meeting someone else's history and ancestry. When these two people are meeting, there's an enormous amount of unconscious dialogue that is happening that includes on both sides, terror, mm. fear, Um, for different reasons. Why would I expect warm embraces? Like, Why would I expect trust and safety when that's not their embodied experience with someone who looks like me? So when I go into a space, I have to track my own body to be aware of what's coming up. And I have to also be super conscious of the language that I use, the way in which I approach someone, my hand gestures, my touch—if and if I even risk to to place my hands on someone, which probably I wouldn't unless it was a yoga class and I had to. Um, but I have to recognize that this trauma is real. It lives deep in everyone. Mm-hmm. It's cultural. It's ancestral. Um, it impacts everything. Mm-hmm. And until we begin to identify how deep the tendrils are, it's hard to have empathy for the perceived other. Meaning that, like, I have to look at my own history. Beyond my whiteness, there's other things that I that I am. Mm-hmm. Being Jewish has its, and being Polish Jewish, Eastern European Jewish, that has its own trauma. Mm-hmm. Now, I wasn't raised with any sense of of a feeling of lack or uh, I was loved and safe. My environment was secure. I knew where my next meal was coming from. I knew that if I lost everything, there'd be some member of my family that would take care of me. So intellectually, Mm -hmm. I I could check all the boxes that I am safe, I am secure, I am okay. But anytime there has been a situation that has been outside of my control. Like for example, when I started saving money um, and investing money, something that for whatever reason was very important to me and I never understood why. Like why was making sure that I had like, um, like a security blanket, why was that important? Mm -hmm. When the stock market crashed, this is years ago, back in 2008 or six, I can't remember. I remember having like, feeling panicked Mm -hmm. I was actually at Kripalu teaching checking like every every break I had and watching everything that I had saved Mm -hmm. over the course of my teaching years just going away going away again intellectually I knew I'm okay that I have a job I'll, I'll get it all back But something else was happening inside that was such a deep level of panic. I literally thought that not only was I going to die, that everyone in my family was going to die because of what was happening. It felt that way in my body. And I had to really track it and realize that this goes back to my ancestry. This is being a Jew. This is immigration. This is coming to America with nothing, with losing family members because of the Holocaust, with that feeling of it's all going to be taken away. Mm. Even though that wasn't my literal experience, it was my unconscious embodied experience that was erupting. And if I wasn't tracking that, it was so real. I was about to make decisions based on that realing, that realness. Mm. I was going to make choices based on that. And knowing that, Feeling, tracking that in my body gave me the tools. Yoga gave me the tools to breathe, Mm -hmm. to ground, to cry, to be like, hey, grandma, I hear you. You're scared right now. Mm -hmm. I got you. Everything is okay. We're going to move through this. Um, But it allowed me to be in relationship to that embodied peace. As an activist, what it allows me to do then is that when I'm in an environment that is unfamiliar to me, that's not a part of my culture, not a part of my trauma, my awareness, and I'm in relationship with other people, I also recognize that they're meeting me in their own ancestral trauma.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I know, I might not know what that is, mm-hmm. but I know how deeply that feels. And I can only have empathy for their embodied experience if I'm having empathy for my own so that I don't personalize it so that when they maybe they get they reject me or insult me I'm not going to try to get them to understand me or I'm not going to go into my own white fragility and just like sob and try to get them to understand I'm going to do this use the same tools I'm going to ground I'm going to breathe and I'm gonna to try to meet them at their humanity in the same way I hope. I, I can't even expect them to meet me at mine. I have to meet me at mine. And I feel like this is what we don't do. We don't recognize that the world is in trauma, that this trauma is real, that it is historical, that it impacts all of us, that most people are using, or many people are using drugs, alcohol, sex, TV, internet, shopping, gambling, to anesthetize Mm -hmm. from the big feelings because the big feelings are too much, they're not normalized, they're not valued or supported, and they're not enough places for tools to be given to help people to move through that internalized trauma and to get to what's underneath the rage, which is the grief. Mm -hmm. And that's what in the work that I do that I try to give space for my own internalized stuff, knowing that this is, this is going to go on for a long, long time. But if I'm not working with it, I will create harm. It's a guarantee. It's not a maybe it's a guarantee, Mm. but if I'm doing the work, I might still cause harm, but I'll also know how to take accountability, Mm. responsibility, ownership, make amends. um, And, Uh, and not just avoid the conflict. That's, I feel so strongly, and especially right now where all of our trauma has been just on display this past year, Mm -hmm. we have an opportunity going forward to reimagine what our new normal is going to look like Mm -hmm. and not to try to go back to what was, because what was wasn't working for any of us. But to reemerge into this moment, humbled, raw, um, appreciative for the life that we have, for some of us use our privilege in a more mindful way um, and work collectively to recreate a world that can and should be abundant, just, and really healthy psychologically healthy, emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy for everyone. The only reason that that's not happening is because of this sense of embodied separation. And if we can find cohesion individually, peace is the inevitable outcome. Mm -hmm. And there couldn't be food insecurity. There couldn't be racial terrorism. Mm there couldn't be any kind of national unjust because we would recognize, as the yogi say, that our liberation is bound. And that, as has been said many times, that I can't be free unless we're all free. And that it becomes as organic as eating and breathing, doing the work of integration. Hmm. And I hope that people move towards this moment that we're in with a renewed sense of vigor, of hope, Mm. of commitment, that this is not a moment to say like, oh good, glad that's over. Mm. It's like, no, what did we learn? Mm -hmm. What was, what grief, what loss, what rage Mm. was being reflected back to us? that we're being asked to move towards, not away from, but towards, because that's where the healing is. Therefore, that's where the change is. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) I feel like I need to let that sit within me for a moment. Um, Just such a profound teacher in this um, journey for us all. So thank you, Sean. Thank you. I feel like, so much of your life was traveling and being around the world. I feel like people have gotta be curious. What is your life looking like today in this last year? What, is it, what has it been and what are you doing now? You it, you it know,
2: it's very funny and I appreciate you asking that question. Um, and the question has come up for people uh, a lot and I'm surprised that mm-hmm. they're like interested in this. Um, but for 25 years of my life, I have been, um, well actually really for 20, Years, I have been a dedicated traveling yoga teacher. Mm -hmm. That I've been on the road more or less 250 days out of the year. Very committed, very on purpose. Um, My nervous system is set up in such a way that I can I can navigate a lot of stress um, until I can't. Just by the way, (laughs) there's no like. It's like I'm when I collapse, I collapse hard. Um, But I really can hold a lot of stress. For the last few years, I have felt a real need to pull back Mm -hmm. and to want to be home more with my family, to have a different kind of a life. There are a lot of compromises that I have had to make in my purpose Mm -hmm. that most people wouldn't have wanted to make. Um, and I was fine with those compromises, um, having a very unconventional relationship, choosing not to have children, biological children, things of that nature. Um, all of that was, it was very clear for me who I was, what I was doing. And I was very much guided by spirit, but I was also really tired Mm -hmm. and feeling the depletion, feeling a sense of imbalance. And as I was approaching 50, Something in my body was needing to move into a different role in my community—one that was, um, one that was making space for others, mm. one that was more of a mentor—that mm. didn't didn't hold the spotlight in the same way. But I didn't know how to make that transition. I'm a, based on what I said before, you know, my Jewish background and all of that, and the the issues of stability and security. When it ain't broke, you don't fix it. Like you don't just stop a train when everything is in place. I didn't know how to do that. And yet I was praying and in therapy, really like looking at how do I make this transition so that I can take on a different role in my life and nest, if you will, Mm -hmm. in this next phase of my life, be with my partner be with my, my family differently. And then COVID hit and Mm -hmm. I went from a hundred miles an hour to nothing. And, um, for about a few days, as I scrambled to figure out my schedule, like everybody else, Mm -hmm. as you know, each month I was watching like, well, I better cancel that, you know, that you know, each each week really is like, well, I probably should cancel that and cancel that, hmm. until I finally made the decision. Cancel everything, wipe it. Mm-hmm. Just it's over, it's done. And I remember sitting with it and feeling into that moment. I could feel the panic hmm. and the confusion. Who am I if I'm not teaching? What's my identity in the world? What's my attachment to that identity been? I watched my colleagues really scrambling to get online Mm. and jockeying and and, and I don't, I was already behind the eight ball on that regard. I I don't have any internet skills. I don't know how to work a mic. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know anything. Um, And I sat with that and then I decided I am not going to teach publicly I'm gonna take some serious time off Mm -hmm. and sit with this moment that we're in. Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to quickly teach to it, to avoid my own discomfort, I'm gonna look at this Mm -hmm. as an an opportunity to reset and reflect and look towards the future in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so in the beginning I taught Um, on a, on a Sunday, I would do a free class on Instagram, just as a support for the community, just to name the moment, give people a place for grief Mm -hmm. to not be afraid to say like, okay, I'm confused. I'm scared. How about you? What's going on with you? But other than that weekly thing. And after actually, when the murder of George Floyd happened, I shifted and passed the mic and stopped teaching them and gave them to other people in the community because I felt what needed to be spoken to in that moment needed to be spoken to by other teachers.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that other kinds of representation was essential and I needed to pull back. So I stopped teaching altogether after George Floyd murder. And so I went into deep isolation. I'm an, in, I'm an introvert by nature. I am not extroverted, meaning that my soul does not get fed in public, in large crowds with other people. It, I, I do it very well and I enjoy it, but that's not where my soul gets fed. My soul gets fed in isolation when I'm with myself. My introvert was in heaven Denise <laughs> says that all the
0: time. <laughs> right there with you, Sean.
2: <laughs> it, my nervous system so quickly was happy mm. and comfortable, and so in this past year, my stepdaughter had a baby, and I became a grandma, That's- and I got to be with my grandchild. Yeah. My grandchild is going to know me as her grandma, not this figure that just pops in. Mm-hmm. and shows up um, you know, for holidays or major events or crises, mm-hmm. this, this child is gonna know me in a very, very different way day in and day out. Mm-hmm. I've never had that experience before of this is something I've wanted. Um, I've been able to mentor and show up for my community in a different way, especially with other kinds of leaders in a more quiet way behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been able to pivot online and learn how to work a mic and the internet mm-hmm. and challenge myself how to break that fourth wall in the way, when I walk into a yoga class, I a live experience, I know how to channel. I know how to tap into energy. I know how to get out of the way. Mm. I didn't know how to do that when I'm, uh, when I'm looking at my couch pushed up against the wall right now and like you know, my dog barking and this camera staring at my face. Yeah. I had to reach into myself creatively and find a way in which to still hear an internal voice and be vulnerable enough to let that come through me mm. um, and have enjoyed it. Mm. So this year, as difficult as, as it has been on a collective level, and in some ways on a personal level, um, it's also given me things that other people might take for granted, which is time at home with my family. I learned to cook. Um, I never knew how to do that and have always wanted to feed the people that I love. But when you're on the road, it, it just doesn't lend to it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm good at it. Like mm-hmm. I've learned like these, just all these new skills. I've barely left my house and um, uh, hopefully I'll be vaccinated very soon. Uh, and uh, be able to go home and see my mom, that's probably the thing that I've missed the most, Mm -hmm. and have really used this time to study. I've gone back to the sutras, Mm -hmm. gone back to the original text, but through a mature lens. I read the words differently now. And I've gotten to practice with teachers that I've, my own yoga practice is so much deeper and richer than it's been in decades because of this time. And I hope that as we do reemerge, I, I, I tell this to my friends all the time, that when we go back out into the world, I'm going to be such a good teacher Mm -hmm. because of what happened this year, uh, because of how I've been able to study. Like I can't wait to see how all the things that I've been able to integrate are going to affect my, my role as a teacher and my ability to communicate this new information. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, my life is very unglamorous, but it always was very unglamorous. It just looked glamorous from the outside, mm-hmm. but when you're schlepping on planes and you know, like <laughs> not sleeping, totally constipated, eating food, <laughs> like there's nothing the travel about, about that. Um, my life is is t- more tender, more simple, mm-hmm. um, and I'm so grateful. Even though um, I, I mean, it's hard to say that under these circumstances when so many other people have lost family members jobs all of that i say this from a real place of privilege mm-hmm. in that i could afford to not work and know that i'm okay mm-hmm. know that if i'm not okay my you know my my partner is going to be taking care of me mm-hmm. i so i say all this with deep humility mm-hmm. knowing that that's not the case for so many people whose lives are lost who will never recover who there will be generational poverty because of this moment. That wasn't my reality. But because of that, I committed to using this time to really going in and healing and changing, and I hope growing in a way that benefits others going forward.
1: Mm. I love that
0: beautiful Sean
1: so I'm super aware of your time I don't want to take up too much of it (laughs) we want you to speak a little bit about Revolution Within just so people kind of know because this kind of connects into like what you've been doing and what you are doing I know it goes to the end of the year so you can tell people a little bit about that
2: yeah uh, Revolution Within is my is uh, my online um, program It was the pivot that I made when I thought about teaching again I thought like I don't wanna just throw down weekly classes for people just to pop in and do. it. For me, there had to be an arc. And I wasn't sure at first of what that arc was going to look like, but I wanted to speak to this moment and really Mm -hmm. challenge people like, in the same way I'm doing this work, let's do this together and let's build community and let's find a space where we can name the things. We can name COVID and grief and death and loss We can name on national unrest, political unrest, racial terrorism, um, white supremacy, and find tools in order to move people through a process that can let them reflect on this moment and deal with the anxiety, deal with the trauma, but also look to the future about what do we do with this? Now what? Hmm. So each week is a theme. And the themes, uh, Mondays uh, is uh, where I set the theme uh, and then lead people through a meditation. Tuesdays is a posture lab. And again, this is new for me and I love it. Usually I just throw down vinyasa flow. Posture lab, there's no flow. It's the wall, blocks, straps, a chair. I isolate the poses, really teach how to do them, how to modify them, how to go deeper and sit with them with them, but the theme follows into that class. Mm -hmm. Then we take those poses on Thursday into a flow Mm -hmm. and the theme becomes more about inquiry where I ask questions of the students related to that theme. So for the past few months, we've been working like uh, the eight limbs of yoga, the yamas, the niyamas, and breaking each week what that is, whether Mm -hmm. it's nonviolence or truthfulness or possessiveness, And really inviting people into deep inquiry about what that means for them. How does it show up? And then on Sundays is Sacred Sunday, where we take that theme into an embodied prayer and look at how we're going to make those changes in ourselves and then pray for others. Mm. And look outside of our own experience and really hold people. So it's like even in the chat, we we talk about who we're praying for um, so that people can witness it. And then we bring all of that in. And if there's something that's happening in the community, like this last week, it was acknowledging the AAPI community, the uh, Asian American Pacific Islanders uh, who are dealing with just violence and racism and naming it, acknowledging it and praying, but also committing to being active about what that looks like to create change. Mm -hmm. And so... As we're moving through the the yoga sutras, the yamas and the yamas and breaking poses down and rooting people, I'll move into trauma, the mind-body connection, chakras, helping people to really identify the shadow, bringing in therapists to talk about grief, Mm -hmm. um, about recovery. um, And then moving into, as we get further down the line, into the next steps, talking about social justice, talking about all of these issues. But I'm hoping that over the course of a year that give people a pathway from looking from the individual to the collective, the the me to the we, and finding tools and community to normalize these conversations to embody them, and then to make the necessary inside-out change in their lives. So that's revolution within, and there's different pathways. You could do drop-in classes, um, but the transformation pass, that includes everything and a monthly processing call where people can talk about all that's coming up, and access to a Facebook support page where people can just say, like, I'm having a shitty day. Mm. Um, Is there anyone out there also having a shitty day? Can we... Can we connect privately, um, you know, or someone else posts, you know, a picture of their dog Mm -hmm. or break down the yamas and niyamas more. Like it's a place for community to come together to really just not be alone in a time where being alone is saving lives. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also impacting mental health. Mm -hmm. And I wanted a space where we can acknowledge that this moment is impacting all of our mental health, health issues and we can work together to help to support each other in this process.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, Sean, we have um, a laser round of questions that we ask all of our guests if we can ask you sure. our questions. Um, so the first question is who have been your greatest mentors, your teachers, the people who have influenced you most on your journey?
2: Oh, there's so many. That's such a difficult question. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it probably has to be my mom. Mm. Um, I'm very, very close with my mother, but, but it has to be because I came into this world um, intense, mm. fiery, emotional, intuitive. The type of child that had I been raised by other parents, they wouldn't have known what to do with me they would have tried to break my spirit and diminish my voice, invalidate my intuition. And I was blessed enough to have a mother who encouraged it, defended it, supported it, valued it. Um, Let me, I couldn't be too much, too big, too loud, too bold. That word T-O-O, which my community was always saying, you're too whatever, my mother it was like, be bigger. Be bigger. <laughs> and as a result of that, I've always had this little mantra that I will never allow anyone to speak to me in a way that my own mother wouldn't. Mm. And meaning that if someone is mean, dismissive, and cruel, um, insulting, I wasn't raised with that. Yeah. It was never okay. My nervous system was never accustomed to that then why would I ever allow anyone else Hmm. to speak to me in that way? So I think that my confidence is because of that support and mirroring. And so I've had so much influence over the years, but it's all because of my foundation and my core values, which stemmed from my mother. And so it's the only way I know how to answer that, you know? It's not really, you know, dramatic, but it's just very true for me. But it's profound. I mean, I think it's, I
1: think it speaks to what as therapists we're speaking to all the time, right? With attachment and, and allowing children to be authentic. And now what people are working towards in their, in their adult life, trying to heal old stuff about not being allowed to be authentic and all of these things. So it's, it's a profound kind of statement. Yeah.
0: Wow. wow, Does it give me a North star as a mother to sort of strive towards? So beautiful. Yeah. Same.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the next question
2: is What breaks your heart? Um, injustice mm-hmm. has all oh, uh, on every level, whether it's related to gender injustice, racial injustice, animal rights, mm-hmm. um, environmental rights, indigenous sovereignty it goes on and on i think that's the core of who i am mm-hmm. is i never understood bullying meanness harm in that way and i would become so outraged i think though if you ha- interestingly if you ha- if i had to narrow it down to the one thing that really breaks my heart because of the way my nervous system responds to it it's the suffering of animals, mm. and, and it's because I've been in environments where I have bared witness to unimaginable injustice, especially in relationship to children and sexual abuse, and my nervous system, I can be present to that. I can breathe, ground, respond. I don't make it about myself and I'm very effective Mm -hmm. in being able to hold space. Whereas I've seen other people collapse. Mm -hmm. They cannot handle it. When I see an animal in pain, I can't handle it. Mm -hmm. Something happens with my nervous system that I shake, I cry. all of a sudden it becomes about me. People have to orient and take care of me rather than the issue at hand. So I'm really ineffective as a frontline activist when it comes to animal rights. I always have to be behind the scenes. I could be vocal about it and I can contribute money, but I cannot ever show up in a place where I have to witness an animal being harmed. I cannot do it. Mm. So I think somewhere at my core, that breaks my heart the most Mm -hmm. because there's a level of integration that I haven't been able to come to terms with yet. Unless my skills of dissociation when it comes to um, sexual violence or other kinds of injustice is so high Mm -hmm. that I'm just completely dissociated in those moments, there is a chance that that's true. (laughs) Um, But I, I know that if even someone says, hey, we're going to be doing this thing and going to a factory farm, it's like, no, 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 that's yeah. never, that's not me. It's not going to happen. I'll cry even in the conversation. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I can, when you say it, it's the first thing that hits me, even yeah. though it, there's a, th- so many other issues when it Central. comes to human rights that seem, my body
0: responds differently. Mm-hmm. Sean, where do you find yourself in flow states where hours pass, you haven't even watched the time, you could do this all day and never get tired of doing this thing?
2: Teaching, Mm -hmm. without a doubt. That's, um, uh, it's, uh, I actually, for the first time in this conversation, felt tears really come to my eyes around this. Actually, second time with you earlier, (laughs) Danae. (gasps) I can only wish in a course of a lifetime that someone could step into my body when I teach yoga, when, not all the time, trust me, there are so many other times where I'm thinking about food and like, you know, like something else that's going on in my life, you know, it's not always tapped in. But when I am tapped in, there's, I I can only imagine it's what it must be like for a painter who just knows how to paint Mm -hmm. or a piano player who just knows how to play the piano. That's how it feels, I just know what to do, what to feel, the words come through me and I don't second guess them. And it is, there's such a shared energy that's moving in the room that I am in so aligned with and in service to, that I know that that's exactly where I'm supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing 100% in my purpose. And I don't, I don't question any of it nor do I think about it afterwards. There's nothing anyone can say to me afterwards that would make me feel better about the experience or worse about it. Like my ego is so detached. I just know that what I did was exactly what needed to be done and hours could pass and I'm not fatigued. I'm, I'm neutral and, but joyous. That is my art. Um, so and again not always I don't want to like spe- send out that message that it's always like that because it's not but in those when it is I just wish all people can experience that especially all yoga teachers if they haven't um that's when I'm happiness mm. uh, being with my partner um you know it also our lives together um we we've been together almost 21 years Um, And our relationship is very private. It's not something I'm public about. Uh, And that's really more because of him. He's a very private person and I respect uh, his privacy. Mm -hmm. So rarely do I post pictures of us um, or our family. This past year, he's loosened the reins a little bit since we've had a grandchild and um, has allowed me just to let people into that. But our life together is very easy. Mm -hmm. Um, An enormous amount of support um, trust, value. Um, uh, I often say I'm with my mother, not my father, like in this relationship. Like when they say you marry your father, I'm like, I don't think so. I think I may have, uh, I may be in deep relationship with my mother because he's uh, the wind beneath my wings. And uh, I get an enormous amount of ease. Uh, and time. Uh, time is very settled when we're together. But granted, remember, even though we've been together 20, almost 21 years, this is the first time we've actually spent an entire year, right. day in and day out. Right. Just like put some perspective <laughs> to <that>. Hey, <laughs> you're at the end of the year and you still you feel like it. you're doing so <laughs> different. So
1: uh, I think you're okay, <laughs> hopefully. beautiful. Um, okay, so uh, the final one is the doozy. So the final question is, what's your favorite food?
2: Oh my God. Um, <laughs> oh, my favorite food. Well, you know, you complicate that because if you asked me that question a year ago, it would have been um, sauteed kale with uh, um, mushrooms and uh, seared tempeh uh, because it was the only meal I knew how to make. And (laughs) it was. The meal my teacher, Matias Rati, taught me how to make mm. um, when she learned that I couldn't cook when I did my first teacher's training back in 1994. Mm. She brought me to her house and she taught me that meal and that meal became my go-to. And I love that meal. Since I've learned how to cook, things have changed. <laughs> my horizons have expanded. And my palate is way more sophisticated. And... I, I would say, like right now, I just learned how to make, uh, it's, a, it's a type of mushroom that when sauteed in, I use a vegan butter, a vegan browned butter with thyme, mm-hmm. that tastes like scallops. Oh, and was this on the? I I
1: think I saw this. Was did you get this off of? Um, what is it? Chef's table. The the Korean monk that actually does this specific dish. I don't think I got it from him. Okay, but I got it somewhere. I didn't.
2: I (laughs) I got it somewhere. But you're like raving about it. (laughs) It is so good. The the mushroom is a trumpet mushroom, Mm. sliced. I'm living on this right now. (laughs) It is so amazing. (laughs) And so I'd have to say that is right now one of my favorite dishes. Um, But if you, one food, though, that is my favorite of everything and has been since I was 14 years old, but I cannot eat it are sunflower seeds, salted sunflower seeds, roasted sunflower seeds, because I'm highly addicted to them, (laughs) highly, and I can't eat just three, it's four bags a day. Um, and it's nonstop yeah. to the point where like I, it cuts off my fingernails <laughs> and swells my tongue. And it also <laughs> is a replacement for anxiety.
1: Yeah,
2: It's what I did when I, I struggled with obsessive compulsive disorder as a child. And one of the ways in which I could self-regulate was through eating sunflower seeds. Yeah. And so when I get into that, it, it substitutes for me having to do other ways to self-regulate. Yeah. So I'm not allowed, if, a, if, if my partner sees, like right now I'm off the wagon, I've been off the wagon for about, a, no, I'm on the wagon. I'm on the wagon, I've been on the wagon. Is that right when you're in your <laughs> yeah. addiction? Yes, I you're on. <laughs> I, it's been a year, uh, I had like a five-year clean span Then when I went on my book tour, one of my childhood friends gave me a packet of sunflower seeds Uh, as a present on tour. uh, And it happened while I was on tour. I saw it one night, late (laughs) at night in my hotel room. And I was like, you know what? I'm really hungry, I'm really tired. Which when when you have addiction, Tired, hungry, yes. bad. Halt. <laughs> halt, exactly. Yes. And I was like, it's sunflower seeds. What's my problem? <laughs> that one packet went to four within a week. Oh, and no. <laughs> it lasted for about, um, I would say about six months. But I'm telling you, when I brought that, when my partner saw that packet of sunflower seeds in our house, he looked at me like startled. Like... <laughs> Are you okay? And I was like, this is happening. We're doing this and I don't know anything about it. So right now I'm sunflower seed free and have been for over a year and hope that I can maintain it. There are no sunflower, actually, there is a pack of sunflower seeds in the cabinet up here You've got started. them in the house, Sean. <laughs> they're going to go into the garbage. I just have a reflection that there is, I, I, this is my studio. My house is downstairs. There's no sunflower seeds downstairs. There's a packet there. They're going to, in the garbage. I love that you know, it's like the peripheral behind <laughs> oh, you. You're like, are right here. This I is addiction. This I is get addiction. it. Even though people laugh at me and they're like, it's sunflower seeds. They don't understand. It's, it's, it's real. It's real. And so sunflower seeds are my favorite and Mm -hmm. I am not allowed anywhere near them.
0: (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) Sean, I feel like I could listen to you and learn from you for days. You will never know how much I'm going to speak for Vanessa when I say like, this is just something that we will treasure having this time Mm -hmm. with you. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you for this opportunity just to tell you how much you have meant Uh, to both of us truly.
2: Yeah. That means the world to me and especially means so much to know that if anything that I said impacted you enough to do what you're doing right now, to speak to other people, that knowing that it trickles down and that maybe who you're speaking to, it's going to change the way they parent. It's going to change the way they show up in their, at with their coworkers. Right. It's going to change perhaps the trajectory of their own purpose. And they may never know who I am, but I hold in my body that, that great joy of knowing that it keeps going, it, like it mm-hmm. passes on. And hopefully with more and more of us doing the work, stepping into purpose, speaking out, just that, that it, it gets wider yes. and the community gets bigger. And maybe we can through all of these efforts create a better world. And so thank you for reflecting that back to me. And I hope that you all both get the support you need and uh, the mentorship and all of it so that you can keep doing your work as well.
1: Yeah. Thank you for reminding, reminding me of the importance of that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Yeah.
2: Big love to you and big love to everyone out there. Stay well, stay healthy, stay real and honest and true. Reach out to community. Do not be afraid of these conversations. Take your mental health very, very seriously know that there are tools to manage anxiety, but the biggest thing that's gonna help to manage anxiety is to break the shame and the secrets around it. Mm -hmm. And to know that there really are resources Mm -hmm. that can help us take that exhale so that we don't feel weird or different Mm -hmm. um, or isolated, that we actually recognize that we're all going through this Mm -hmm. in different ways. And that the more that we can come together in, um, in these conversations, the more that we can move through them, understand them, empower them and uh, change our own lives and others as a result.
1: Amen. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Thank you all.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: And if you want to connect with us, you can find us on Instagram
0: at Vanessa S. Bennett. And at Danae Logan-Selkin.